I'd like to read a portion of scripture that says what's on my heart this morning from Philippians chapter 1. thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is right for me to think of this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and the praise of God. I ask that I might come this morning and say thank you. I did not know of a better portion of God's Word to read than that one, for indeed you have been laborers and partners with us in the Gospel. But I want to thank you this morning for your prayers on our behalf, for my family and myself, for the work of the Gospel in Glens Falls, I want to thank you for your concern that many, most of you have expressed when we've been here, when we've seen you in other places, and even some of you have called us. I want to thank you for your words of encouragement that have been at appropriate times, many times, when we needed them. I want to thank you for your financial help. And most of all, I want to thank you for sharing your pastors with us. I promised myself I wasn't going to do this. We'll see you again, many of you upon this earth, but if not upon the face of this earth, with our Lord in heaven. And then I have one announcement to make. Part of the New York State law requires that when a church dissolves, it must do something with its assets and its property. The Adirondack Baptist Church voted last Wednesday night, before we voted to dissolve, to give our property and our building to the Albany Baptist Church for you to dispose of and use the funds in your own building endeavors in the future ahead. 
We love you folks. And we count it a joy and a privilege to know that we'll still be in your prayers. And you'll be in ours. God bless you. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 18. The Gospel of John 18. We renew our preaching through the Gospel of John and come to this climax of the Lord's ministry in this world, in the flesh, and enter into that last time of his passion. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to read the first 11 verses, then give a brief synopsis of that chapter and try to set it in its context historically and theologically. And then we will open up, God willing, something of this portion that we read regarding the arrest of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Please follow with me as I read chapter 18, verses 1 through 11 of the Gospel of John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden into which he entered himself and his disciples. Now Judas also, who betrayed him, literally who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received the band of soldiers, or the cohort, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, comes there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and says to them, Whom seek you? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to them, I am. And Judas also, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Again therefore he asked them, Whom seek you? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. Now you note in any of your translations the word he is inserted in italics. That's because it was not in the original. What he said was I am. And the word he is supplied for our uh, grammatical understanding. I told you that I am he or that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these, and he refers to the disciples, go their way that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's 
servant and cut off his right ear. Now the servant's name was Malchus. Jesus therefore said unto Peter, Put up the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Let's bow together. Our God and Father, again we worship before you. And we confess that we come upon a passage of scripture which conveys to us the most holy and sacred of information. And we feel ourselves completely and utterly unworthy of handling such material. And ask you, O Lord, for the sake of your Son who suffered these things for us, that you would pour out your Spirit upon these arms of flesh and these feet of clay. And that as in your wisdom you have deposited the treasure of the gospel into these earthen vessels, you may now, by the grace that is in Christ and according to the abundance of that grace, pour out your Spirit upon us that we may do justice to the passage. Lord, you know we're unable to make these things come through as they are. Our hearts don't even feel the weight of such an event as they ought. We wish we could delve in more deeply from the soul and feel these things. You know how much we could handle you know why you have restrained us from it. We ask this morning that as much as we're able to handle and as much as would glorify you and encourage our holiness and build the strength of our faith and convict the sinner and save him, that you would open up your word to us. O oh Lord, withhold not that gift of your spirit that you promised to your children who ask and observe that we do not ask because we think that in any way we deserve such a thing. We look at ourselves and would shrink back from such a task this hour. But we ask for the sake and in the name of him whose righteousness we wear by grace and whose righteousness is an adequate and successful righteousness able to bring your favor to us who believe upon him. So we ask in Jesus' name and plead with you that you would now visit us from on high and do a great work in our midst in the preaching of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me at the outset, before I give the synopsis or the synthesis of this chapter to you, just in your presence confess what a blessed thing it is that even though in a constituted church in Glens Falls is officially and legally disbanding, the people of God, who are the true people of God in that place, have not dissolved. And it's a blessed thing that in these days of such apostasy and such widespread uh, resistance to, negligence to, and hatred of the truth, there is a church within driving distance of those brethren there that to which they can go and hear the same things they've been hearing and the things that we preach and love here. And so we're thankful that God has provided for those who love his word and he's provided for them in Boston Lake. As we as I look at some of you who drove an hour plus this morning one way to get here, I know it can be done easily. And I thank God for that precedent that I know will encourage some of them who wonder uh, what's left for them in that place. And we're thankful to stand with you in continued prayer and to rejoice in God's provision for you and to exhort you through this 
side door that I just used on your conscience to get to Boston Lake and worship there. Let me give you a synthesis of this chapter, and then we'll open it up, God willing. First of all, what we find happening in this section of the Gospel of John is the Lord and his disciples leaving the house where they were gathered for that last time of fellowship and prayer where he prayed that high priestly prayer in chapter 17, which we've recently considered. They leave that house from that place where he, as God's appointed high priest, has interceded for his people, the church, for the apostles. And he has called on his Father to provide for us, those who would believe on him through the word of the apostles, all the wonderful blessings that we now enjoy as a foretaste and one day we'll see face to face. They leave and they cross down from Jerusalem, down out of the city through what is now called, I believe, St. Stephen's Gate in the eastern side of the city toward the Mount of Olives and they cross at the bottom in the ravine, the brook Kidron. Literally, it's the winter torrent. It's a dry bed which in the winter time, when heavy rains come, sometimes fills up like an arroyo in the southwestern part of the desert in this country the winter torrent of the Kidron. The same place probably where David crossed, fleeing from Absalom in Second Samuel 15, which we recently read on Sunday evenings. And they cross that brook and they enter an enclosed place. Literally the word place, Judas knew the place in verse 2, uh, an enclosed piece of ground, perhaps enclosed by a grove of trees or perhaps a garden enclosed by a fence or a stone wall, and it was a place where there was a garden called Gethsemane, which means the oil press. It was in the midst of the Mount of Olives, or somewhere toward the bottom of the Mount of Olives, probably in the midst of a grove of olive trees, uh, which no doubt there was some, whoever had owned it or owned it had an olive press in that region. Perhaps the garden was itself a grove of olive trees. And so they enter into the oil press, the place where they press out the oil of the olives to make that which would bring light to the world. And in this place, as we have read, the Lord Jesus is betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve. He is arrested by the Roman cohort. Now this cohort, a cohort existed of, of, of 600 soldiers. And we don't know if the entire cohort was here, but we do have reason to believe there was a great multitude. We're told there was a great multitude, up to 600 soldiers are coming out here with Judas with swords and police cudgels with lam lanterns and torches to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. They are led by a Kiliarch, a tribune, a Roman tribune, a soldier. They are followed by the temple police which the Pharisees and scribes and the chief priests gathered. And they all come along with some of the chief priests and the elders, according to Luke 22, who are with this company. So there's a host of people, a veritable entourage of a multitude, perhaps in the hundreds, coming out to this garden to find this hiding troublemaker and arrest him. They bring their weapons and they bring lights so they can find him in the darkness of the olive trees. Jesus, we read, willingly presents himself to them. Knowing what's about to happen, he steps forward out of the darkness of the garden area 
and asked them. In fact, the language literally says he requested of them. He politely requested, who are you looking for? And they told him, and he said, I am he. And they all fell backward to the ground. And he politely requested again, who are you looking for? And they said, probably reading out the orders they received from the Roman governor Pilate and the chief priest, Jesus of Nazareth. And then, if we were to read further, we would find that he was bound, seized and bound, though he willingly went with them. He was tried before Annas, the high priest, and his son-in-law Caiaphas, who was replacing him in the official conduct of the high priestly business. He was also in this chapter recorded to have been denied by Simon Peter, uh, as we also know that all the other apostles left and fled at this time upon his arrest and his submission to these criminals and wicked men. He is denied flagrantly by Peter on several occasions until the uh, the cock crows at the dawning of the next day. He is then tried by Pontius Pilate, examined, and scourged, whipped with whips. He is handed over by Pontius Pilate for crucifixion while he watches Pilate release to the people at their request a robber, a seditionist, a rebel who overthrows governments, Barabbas. Now that's something of the synthesis of this section of the scripture introduced to us in John 18. What I want to concentrate on with you this morning in the minutes remaining to us is the arrest of Jesus. I want to examine these 11 verses and I want us to consider in the first place the place of the arrest. In the second place, having considered the place of the arrest, the terms of the arrest. On whose terms and on what terms did this terrible miscarriage of justice take place? Third, an explanation of this arrest and these terms of the arrest. And finally, the Lord willing, some lessons to be learned from what we have considered. First of all, then, consider with me the place. We have described it as a garden. Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives an enclosed piece of ground called the olive or the oil press some have called it in history the wine press but more likely the oil press as the Hebrew or origin of this word more aptly assumes but this place is not only a garden where oil was pressed out of olives but it also is a place of our Lord's frequent retreat with his disciples. Verse 2 tells us, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. And the reason Judas knew the place was because Jesus went there often with his disciples. A place of frequent retreat for the Lord. Now he went there to get away from it all. He went there to retreat from the world. He went there in the darkness, in this mountain, often with his disciples. No doubt it was a sweet and pleasurable place for them. No doubt there was much precious conversation that took place in this place, as often in the evenings, maybe during even this Passion Week. It might have been one of the places that he would go to at the end of his days of ministering and teaching uh, in the temple. 
a place where they looked forward to, no doubt, to get him alone, away from the crowd, so they could get some of his teaching and some of his thoughts and some of his help and some of his encouragement. A frequent place of retreat, a special secret place that he entrusted only to a few men. And one of them knew the place, and with him the secret was not safe. But it was also a place of prayer in communion with the disciples. Not just a retreat with them, but a communion with them, a place of prayer. He knew that the Lord often resorted there with the apostles, and no doubt it's a place of frequent prayer, because in this event, we know from the other Gospels, the Lord went and prayed and agonized in the garden. And that leads us to consider also that this place is not just a place of, the, of his frequent retreats and a place of prayer in communion with the disciples, but it's a place of agony. This is the place that introduces to us the last crescendo of the agonies of Christ in suffering for the sins of his people. In all of the treatments that he received, beginning in this moment, in this place, from Judas, one of the twelve chosen and beloved, Peter, who denied him, the boastful Peter who said, I'll go with you to the death, and at the first challenge, fled, and then vehemently, with profanity, denied even knowing him, Caiaphas, the, the high priest of Israel, condemning God's high priest, of Israel, Annas, the old man who was so uh, uh, arrogant and boastful and quick to condemn him, treating God's appointed high priest with, with disdain, Pilate, the Gentile heathen governor who attempted at least on three occasions to wash his hands and his conscience of the whole affair, in the face of all of this, the underlying theme of this whole section of Scripture, at least the thing we want not to miss as the prominent feature, is his suffering. This is a place where the Lord entered his sufferings. This is a place of agony. Gethsemane, the very sound of the word, makes us recoil in thinking of the agony that the God-man experienced in this oil press, even as it were himself taking the place of the olives that were pressed, that were pressed, and out of the pressing of this one, the world has received light, just as the olive oil would have given it. Now, there are several reasons that this is a place of agony, but in the first place, it's the place of his betrayal. This is Judas. Who is Judas? He's a trusted friend. You may not believe that. I think that we can find it in the Scripture. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 55, I believe it to be a messianic psalm, as many are, clearly. This psalm, Masculine of David, pleading with God to hear his supplication in his restlessness, in his complaining and his moaning because of the voice of the enemy, the oppression of the wicked. In verse 12, 
Here's the cry, I believe, of the Lord himself. Psalm 55, 12. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my companion and familiar friend. We took sweet counsel together. We walked in the house of God with the throng and so forth. You see what's done here. Not only was he betrayed, he was betrayed and this betrayal increased the pain. He was betrayed by a trusted friend. You say, trusted friend? Well, I submit to you, this trusted friend was the treasurer of the apostolic band. It was to him that they gave all the money that they had. When the women and the others who ministered to them of their substance and supported their ministry so that they could be free from the labors of their ordinary work and go out and preach, gave them the money, they handed it to Judas the treasurer. There's nobody in, a, in an ecclesiastic setting that's more trusting and more, that is in, uh, empowered with more integrity than the treasurer. The one you trust your money with is the one you trust above all the rest. This man was seen to be one of the twelve. He comes out with profuse kissing. The appearance of the kissing, if you study it in the Gospels, it's not just one kiss. It's the kind of kissing you see in the Middle East where these fellows fall all over each other back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until you begin to suspect their motives. This man, the trusted friend, comes out with a gushing expression of intimate friendship. And in doing it, the very expression is the sign to the enemies of which one they're to, to arrest. They don't even know this man. He knows him. He has to kiss him to let them know who it is they're after. And he gladly accommodates the issue. Notice something about this betrayer and his foolishness. He thinks that he's going to have to give Jesus away because he's assuming Jesus is going to be trying to deceive everybody. Why do you need to go out and kiss the man to give a sign of who he is? Unless you think he's going to be lying about it. I'll tell you, I know he's not going to want to get caught, but I'll help you catch him. I'm going to go up and hug him and kiss him, and then you'll know who the guy is you get him before he gets away. That's the spirit. Oh, how Judas missed the character of his Savior. How he missed the Lord. How he misunderstood him. How many people misunderstood and misunderstand the nature of Jesus Christ. How many think that all he is is a nice prophet and a good man. And they totally miss what kind of man he is. They miss the nature of his kingdom. They think he's here to destroy his enemies in the flesh so that all of his people can live in wonderful peace in this world with no sickness and no trouble. And they misunderstand it so that they become disillusioned when they begin to follow him and the persecutions follow their following him. Judas thought Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans. Judas was one probably among those of zealous spirits. He was frustrated with the man. He, he was a man of this world. He loved money. He sold his own Lord for a piece of money. How he missed it. A trusted friend who chose the most sacred night in Israel, the night of the Passover, Perhaps as, as sacred a place as he could have chosen, the place of the Lord's frequent devotions with his Father. 
He picked a sacred symbol, the friendly kiss, to betray the Lord. Do you think that added to the suffering and agony of our Savior? Now, don't so easily dispose of this by saying, the Lord knew all this was going to happen. Yes, he did. And it's a mystery, and we can't comprehend how he could both know it and still entrust himself to this man. If he knew it, why did he let him be the treasurer? As John, or one of the apostles, tells us, Judas didn't cry out in his opposition to the wasting of that ointment because he loved the poor. That's what he said. He carried away the things put into the box. The point is, he was pilfering the whole time. These 30 pieces of silver were just the, the opening up of the character of the man. He'd been stealing from this treasury of the apostles the whole time. Can you imagine? Doesn't have a place to lay his head, the son of man. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place permanent dwelling. He doesn't own a house. He doesn't even have a rental. He has to depend on supplies of his followers. And out of those supplies, Judas is stealing. That's the man. Jesus knew all this and still entrusted himself to it. Why? Well, doesn't that give you a hint that someone's in control here besides the sinister Judas? He's carrying out his motives of betrayal and the Lord is perfectly cooperating and providing him every opportunity to do it. This is no accident. This is God at work. Agony increased by the betrayal of a trusted friend. It's also agony because it is the place where the beginnings of his substitutionary sufferings commence upon his body and his soul. Gethsemane is the place where he begins to taste the wrath of God against the sins of the people for whom he's suffering. We say substitution because what he bears in this garden, he bears for those who believe upon him. He doesn't bear it for his own sins. This suffering, this agonizing, this grappling, this bloodletting, as he sweats, as we read in other places, as it were great drops of blood under the press of the wrath of God. Why he? If not for others. We are told that in this place he began to be sore amazed. I believe that means that as he began to see the horror of the wrath of God and death in the midst of that wrath descending upon himself, he was sore amazed. Not amazed as you are when you go to the circus and see a triple flip in the, on the bars. But amazed the way the horror of blackness amazed Abraham in the Old Covenant. Amazed as in this great darkness that was beginning to descend upon his soul. He said to the, the disciples, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. God's wrath is beginning to settle on God's Son. The severe anguish in the garden is beginning to make its presence felt on his heart. The inexpressible sorrow exceeding unto death. He's dying. 
The sorrow is so great that it's killing him. The unparalleled heaviness, the weight of your sins falling on Christ. None of this is for anyone other than his everlastingly beloved ones. The elect given him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. Now I ask you a question. If the mere taste and sight of the wrath of God against sin began to kill the Son of God, what must be the awesome horror and the weight of the full measure of that wrath when it's poured out against him? He is beginning to die under the wrath of God against sin. And yet this is the mere taste, the mere beginning, the mere sight. What he begins to see makes his holy humanity recoil. We don't know for sure exactly what he was referring to when he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Whether it be literally the, the probability of dying on the cross for his people, perhaps there's another way. Father, if there is, all things are possible with thee. If it's possible, let this suffering pass from me. That may be. Many and probably most commentators believe that's it. Or whether it's the, the prayer as expressed by others that let this present pressure of the cup that's going to kill me in the garden pass so that I may fulfill my mission at the cross. Or whether, and I believe in this explanation, we can cover either or the other. He's simply seeing the wrath of God. And the horror of death and the powers of darkness coming and something in his holy life recoils so from it that all he can say is, God, if it be possible, let this pass. It's an expression of the horror and the terror and the power of the wrath of God as he sees it, just as he begins to see it. Not intellectually, but in experience. He begins to taste it. This is a place of agony. There aren't words, are there, able to describe the agony of this place. This place is the place of agony. But it's also, because it's a place of agony for him, and it's the agony brought about are a substitute for others. It's agony he's tasting because of what we did. It becomes a place also of encouragement and confidence to the saints. I wish I had time to read a whole section from Hugh Martin's book on the shadow of Calvary, and I would recommend that paperback uh, from Banner of Truth if sometime you get a chance to buy it just for wonderful devotional reading a wonderful description of this section of scripture and an opening up of it the trial, the arrest uh, I, you can read it and be carried away sometimes with his language but he opens up this thing and he explains it I want you to turn back with me to Psalm 69 Psalm 69 verse 7 
This is messianic. This is Christ prophetically beseeching the Father. Verse 7 of Psalm 69. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I become a stranger to my brethren and an alien to my mother's children. For the zeal of thy house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. You see what it's saying there? Those that reproach God, God is turning that reproach not back on them, but on him. The reproaches of those that have reproached thee have fallen on me. They are reproaching me, and I'm being reproached because of their sin. When I wept, and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. He's suffering under their taunts, many of whom he's dying for. They that sit in the gate talk of me. I'm the song of the drunkards. That's what it's like when the world breathes out the name of Jehovah in its casual conversation and can hardly make a sentence of exclamation without calling the deity's name to their breath when the name of Jesus is cast in our movies in our television programs and all over by the idle spec- words of men who have no thought for what he is and what he did a song of the drunkards is that agony but as for me my prayer is to thee O Jehovah in an acceptable time O God, in the abundance of thy loving kindness, answer me in the truth of thy salvation. Hebrews 5 tells us about that prayer. As he says, he was heard in that he prayed, in that he feared. He called unto him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard in that he feared. As for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the abundance of thy loving kindness, answer me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overwhelm me. Neither let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of mine enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before thee. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity. And there was none. With all of this, he couldn't even find any to pity. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink, and so forth. No question what we're here reading here. We're reading the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ himself of his own sufferings and a part of it as you read was the reproach of foe and friend the reproach of foe the neglect and forsaking of friend all weighing him down with heaviness what he's experiencing in the garden is the beginning of this heaviness of heart 
from the reproach, the denial, the betrayal, the arrest, the taunts, the idle singing of the drunkards using his name in vain, the turning away from the Creator by the creation, the rejecting of the high priest by those that ought to come to God by him. And yet it's encouraging and confidence-bringing to us because he cries, In an acceptable time, hear me. I pray unto thee. Now, did the Father hear him? Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 8 tell us that the Father heard him. How the scriptures blend together and build the picture. Isaiah 49, verse 5. Now says the Lord that formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob again to him, and that Israel be gathered to him. For I am honorable in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Verse 6 of Isaiah 49. Yea, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I'll also give you for a light to the Gentiles that you may be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to Him whom man despises, to Him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall worship, because of Jehovah that is faithful, even the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time have I answered thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant to the people to raise up the land to make them inherit the desolate heritage. You see that? In a time that I'm in distress, I make my prayer to thee, in an acceptable time, O Lord, deliver me for the sake of the truth of thy salvation. I have in the acceptable time, we read in Isaiah, heard you. They despise you. You're under the kings. You're a servant to rulers, but I'm going to raise up the rulers to praise you. It's too light a thing for you just to save the the remnant of the Jews. I'm going to give you as a light to the Gentiles as well. No big deal for you to save a multitude of Jews. I'm going to have you saving the whole world. I have answered you in the time that you prayed. When did he pray? What prayer? It began in Gethsemane as he agonized. It began in John 17 as he thought about going to Gethsemane just after John had departed from their meeting and gone out at night. The agony was beginning. The prayer began. I will also, Father, that they be with me whom thou hast given me where I am that they all be one, as thou art in me and I in thee, that they all may be one in us. And then in the garden, praying that the Father would deliver him. And what was the answer to the prayer? Angels came and strengthened him. For what? Strengthened him for what? Strengthened him for death. You remember, the Lord Jesus came not as a victim. He wasn't dragged out into the streets of the city against his will. They didn't sneak up on him in the garden and catch him unawares and find his secret place, drag him out, and with him kicking and yelling and screaming and his, and his Peter and all the others throwing the swords around. That's what they wanted to do. They attempted it. It's not the way he was taken. He presents himself 
tells them who he is, goes with them, submits himself to them, but all of this, on his own terms, he lays his life down. Now that ought to be an encouragement to you, because where he triumphed under his agony, you don't have to agonize. He bore the weight of the wrath of God. And in his prayer, it meant a lot of things, but one of the things for which he prayed was deliverance from death. Now, was he delivered from death? Well, he wasn't delivered from dying unless he was delivered from dying in the garden so he could die at the appointed place. Thus he said, signifying what manner of death he should die. He's already told them what kind of death. He can't die in the garden under the pressure of his grief. He can't die of a broken heart. He must die on a cross on a lifted up tree answering to the brazen serpent in the wilderness that heals the sting of death. He must die on his own terms, but he must give his life, lay it down. It cannot be taken from him or he cannot die as a priest. The priest makes an offering. The high priest offers himself without blemish to God. He doesn't get dragged to his death. He doesn't get killed. He dies voluntarily, willingly, actively dies. And as our priest, he conquered this hour. The grace of his Father conquered this hour. He prevailed over the agony of the garden. He fulfilled his mission of dying for your sins. Now you may pray without that agony and get through. Now you, through the new and living way that is open for you, may boldly enter the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. You ever have time of need? He has been there. He has prevailed. His agony was beneath your sin. Therefore, his triumph is over your sin. Do you understand the connection? He was not being punished for his sin, was he? Anybody believe that? Why was he suffering? Not for himself. That would have been injustice. For you. For me. Now let me ask you, if indeed therefore the agony is for me and because of me and my sin, is not also the, the victory for me? If he suffered the wrath and endured and conquered death and was delivered from death and ultimately out of the bowels of death, for death could not hold him. If the agony was mine, so must the triumph be mine. If the struggle with the Father turning his face away should have been mine, then the Father turning his face back is mine. If God's rejection of my sin was taken by Him, God's acceptance of me in Him is mine. Dear brethren, you must never hold back righteous requests from God in your prayers because you feel unworthy. It's all been done. That's been taken care of. You must never shrink back from asking good things for God's kingdom because you remember your sin. Remember your Savior. 
when your sin haunts you, remember it's been borne by another. When your enemies taunt you, stand up! Fear them not. We read it this morning in Matthew. Fear not those that can destroy the body and afterwards can do nothing. Don't fear them. Go on and shout at them the hostiles. If they kill you, it's already triumphed for you. Death can't hold you either. The Garden of Gethsemane, wherein God heard the prayers of His Son for salvation both of Him and His people and delivered Him in strength to endure the cross. Despising the shame, He is now set down at the right hand of God and we with Him are seated together at God's right hand. That ought to embolden you and encourage your heart. You don't have to live your Christian life in agony. You're not supposed to live in the service of God in some sort of self-deprecating flashing of the back. God told the children of Israel to quit, uh, not to put stripes on their backs like the heathen idol worshippers did. Don't cut your flesh. God doesn't want our flesh cut. We don't have to do that. Don't impose voluntary poverty on yourself. Voluntary suffering. Doing without basic needs in some way thinking you're going to increase God's blessing upon you. That's not God's way. God's already poured all of his wrath upon you in your substitute. And just the taste of it here brought him to his knees, brought blood out of his broken heart, and forced him to cry that God would deliver him, and God did. And he stood. You remember the tone at the conclusion of this agony? He comes back to the disciples after the third time, finds them asleep, and says, You're going to sleep on? Arise. They that betray me are here. Let's go. There's not that tone of fear or dread or horror in it then. There's a sense of triumph. There's a sense, I'm ready. I've wrestled with the powers of darkness and I'm ready. They couldn't stop this. God's will will be prevailing and will be accomplished. One last text in this regard. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I didn't see this till this weekend. And it's an interesting thing. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2, the apostle trying to encourage the saints in Corinth to watch out how they live so they don't give stumbling to others, so that the ministry of the gospel through the apostles not be blamed. He's just finished speaking of, in verse 21 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians of Christ becoming sin for us, he who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, And working together, and some translations add the words with him, so he means we're working together with Christ, we're ambassadors for Christ, working together with him, we entreat also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. And then what does he quote to encourage them to go on in their faith and not receive the grace of God in vain and lose out? He quotes this promise of the Father to the Son. For he says, At an acceptable time I hearkened to thee, and in the day of salvation did I succor thee. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why does he quote a promise of the Father to the Son to encourage the Corinthians as though it were a promise of the Father to them? He's quoting the passage from Isaiah in which the Father promises the Son, I've heard your pleas. I have succored you in the day of salvation. 
Today's the day. Now why does Paul call upon that to encourage the Corinthians to endure and continue in the faith? Because it does apply to the Corinthians. The promise the Father gave the Son and the saving that the Father did of the Son out of this agony in the garden applies to us, his believing children. We have the promise of God's delivering of Christ applied to us so that we have our deliverance in that deliverance. I may almost say that everything he did in that garden, he did it in our place as though we were doing it. And every answer to his prayers was an answer of God to us and our need. That's what we mean by substitutionary suffering. That's why the Garden of Gethsemane is a place of agony, because the substitutionary sufferings strongly begin to fall upon him. You could even think of it in terms of the beginning of the ground war. It's not all happening in one hour, but you can see the pulses increasing, and you can see the intensity, and the whole world stops and holds its breath to get the next report. Because we now know that what's about to happen is going to be unprecedented in the annals of military history. A million soldiers fighting it out in the desert. We don't know what the response is going to be. We don't know how strong the enemy still is. But we know this is going to be terrible. That's the sense we have. Well, that's nothing compared to what was going on here. In the battle of God's Son, with the powers of darkness and the wrath of God. Now, you see, it's not just the devil he's fighting here. What's going on here is that God, his Father, is turning against him. God's wrath is falling on Jesus. And that wrath is against our sin. Grappling with the powers of darkness, interposing his own body and soul in the stead of sinners, standing in the path of retribution due them, fighting their battle, taking their punishment, he agonized and prevailed. Don't miss that. He agonized and prevailed. And you in him therein prevailed. He successfully secured in this the strength to finish the work of our redemption. He prayed and he was heard. He agonized so we wouldn't have to agonize. But quickly, secondly, think with me about the terms of all this. And we've already touched on it. We've probably already told you. We've revealed the secret. What are the terms of this arrest? This seems to be so ungodly, so unjust. What are these men doing arresting this man? What are these sinners doing trying him as a criminal? It's, in, it's unjust. It's unseemly. It, it affects the sensibilities of every civilized man and woman and young person. Why should Jesus have to go through this? And as some among one of the cults in the Moonies would say, what a tragedy that the Son of God should have to go through this. And we're so sorry he had to do this, that they did this to him. But that's not what's happening. The terms of this unjust arrest are God's terms. This is precisely as planned. Now, we do know from the Scripture that he was delivered up by the ungodly hands of wicked men. Acts 2 tells us, or I believe it's Acts chapter 2, uh, but in the book of Acts we read in Simon Peter's sermon that the hands of wicked men used by the ungodly, rebellious Jews slew Jesus. But then he explains in the next clause 
those wicked hands did what the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God determined that they would do. They did nothing other than what God ordained they would do. They had to do it. You say, that doesn't seem fair to me. Well, you talk to God about that. That's what the scripture says. You have to deal with God about what's fair. But be careful you don't begin to judge the one that puts your brain together and gave you the ability to think. Don't use those thoughts against the one that can take those thoughts away. These are Christ's terms. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This may be seen throughout this experience in the garden, and I've just called it these two things. First, you can see this, the fact that the terms are his and that his disposition is so controlled. Look at his controlled disposition. He knew what was coming, yet he made no effort at all to avoid it. Not one. Who are you looking for? And as soon as they said, he answered. And you said, why did he go through all this? Why didn't he come out and say, I don't know what's going on here. I planned this. That's not the way he does that. But one of the things he wants to secure, their testimony that the one they want is he. So that then he can say, okay, we got it clear who you've come out to arrest. Your orders from Pilate were me. Let the others go then. What he's really doing here is making sure to take care of the disciples. That's why he's going through this process. He also wants a firm confession from their mouths that will stand against them in the day of judgment. You're coming to arrest the son? Who you coming? Who, I want to hear it from your mouth. Who are you coming to get? Jesus of Nazareth. I'm he. You said it. I'm he. <coughs> no effort at all. And by the way, brethren, this is a full moon night. This is the night of Passover. Full moon. They brought torches and lanterns. They want to lighten up the light of the world. They brought the swords and the cudgels of a cohort to arrest the Prince of Peace. When has this man ever done anything that would elicit this kind of weaponry? What, what, was there ever done anything that they think they need this stuff? What kind of army is he gathering? You can see that the wicked flee when no man pursues. The conscience of the ungodly is constantly scared of something that's about to happen. One of the ways you can tell you're not walking close to God is when you start getting scared of everything. Because when you walk close to God, you remember the promises of God and they buoy you up. It's one of the things I want to encourage you ladies, especially you who are of weaker constitution in some ways, how quickly you get afraid and the world shakes around you. Because you quickly forget those texts of Scripture. I want to say it to your husbands. It is your duty, dear brother, to help her with those texts of Scripture. Teacher, now don't take the place of thinking she doesn't know anything. She probably knows more than you know, but keep disciplining her who tends to forget it to read the Scripture. Read it to her, remind her of it, and from your own devotionals come bouncing out and say, Guess what I found in Mark this morning? Share it with her. Don't isolate her. Don't leave her to her own deals with God and you've got your private devotions and she has hers and you ne Get out of that stuff. She needs to be helped. And you'll find if you'll help her that she'll rise up and encourage you. He was regarding the welfare of his own disciples. Controlled disposition. His compassion was flowing out of him right in this hour. Would you be thinking of somebody else when they're out to get you like this? They're coming to arrest me. Would you forget that and think, now, let me get this clear so that these guys can go. My first concern is these men. 
Oh, how much unlike him we are. He restrained his disciples' misplaced zeal. Peter raises a sword. He's lunging at Malchus. He's not going for the ear, brethren. The guy steps aside and loses an ear. Had he not stepped aside, it would have been the, the blow on the face, right in the middle of the head. He was heading for the end. Peter's going to be swinging this thing and wiping out everybody you can. He, has, he knows he's going to die, but he's going to go down fighting. The Lord says, put that thing back in the sheath. And in the process, from the other Gospels, he heals the ear. He touches it and heals it. I don't get the picture that he reached down and picked it up off the ground and put it back. I, it's a picture I get. He touched it here and he put it back. That's control. That is self-control. Control disposition. Heals. He didn't stretch his hand out to defend himself. He didn't stretch it out to kill an enemy. He stretched it out to heal a man. Now, John, who writes this, knew who Malchus was. John was a close uh, confidant of the high priest. He knew the family, he knew the household servants. So he calls him by name. He knew the man. What a witness the scripture is to history. His controlled disposition shows that these, are done, these things are being done on Christ's terms. But not only that, his purposed restraint what the, one another has called his unbroken self-possession. You see, the Lord possessed the power to annihilate these enemies. You knew that, didn't you? I mean, if he says, I am, and that whole cohort falls down backwards, what kind of power does he have? I mean, that immediately mentions, I am he. And back they go. We've seen him in the past. They drag him out of Nazareth, out under the brow of a cliff to throw him down, but he, passing by, walks out of their midst. How? There's more going on here than fleshly power. God is here. And I tell you, you cannot budge God. You can't heap enough nuclear weaponry to touch God. Nor his anointed. This is the mouth, by the way, the one that said, I am he. This is the mouth out of which comes the broadsword, the two-edged broadsword of battle we read about in Revelation 19, who when he wields it at the next time he comes, it will not be the simple I am that makes people fall down a little bit. It's going to wipe out his enemies so that the blood is going to be to the depths of the horse's bridles. So that the vultures of the whole universe are going to have no end of feasting on what's left after Jesus destroys his enemies. The words, the words which give life, every word of God we shall live by, are also able to snuff life out. He had the power to annihilate them. He said, don't you know that if I wanted, I could ask my father and he could send 12 legions of angels? I believe that's 72,000 angels. I think there's 6,000 per legion. He could send 72,000 angels if I wanted and asked. Right now, Peter, come on. You got a sword, there's a couple of swords. Uh, you remember the comment when they said, Lord, here's a sword. Remember he said, uh, let him that has a sword take it. Peter said, we got two of them. Remember? And the Lord said, it is enough. I'm not sure that he didn't mean enough. That's plenty, Peter. 
I'm not sure there's not a little sarcasm in that. That's, that's, that's plenty for you. Thank you. We really appreciate that help. I've got 72,000 angels at my disposal. Now, brethren, you say, well, why didn't he use them? Because they love sinners. Don't you be so audacious as to question this man's act in this suffering and voluntarily giving himself. He did it for sinners. I'm glad his kingdom's not of this world because you wouldn't have been saved if it were. I'm glad he doesn't use the armaments of men to bring about his cause and his purpose. I'm glad he doesn't need them. There is a place for Americans to defend and support a righteous cause militarily. But I'll tell you, this thing going on in the desert is not the thing that Christ is doing to accomplish his will. Now, he, that's not the way he's building his kingdom. He'll use it. They're going to be members of his eternal church out of this war. People that, got, that read their Bible and saw the gospel and heard it for the first time and got saved out of it. They're going to be a few preachers with egg on their face. And they're going to shut their mouths. And there are going to be a lot of people turning to churches that preach things that help instead of this poetry they've been hearing. There'll be good things out of this. God's going to rid the world, probably, God willing, of a wicked regime and an ungodly man who even in his last breath is wiping out the innocent so there won't be witnesses against his terror. But I tell you, that's not God's war. You've got a different kind of war, a different kind of weaponry, and a different kind of kingdom. And he could have used all those resources to stop this one, but he didn't. His purposed restraint is proof that this thing is being carried out on his terms. He offered himself utterly, voluntarily. They expected to find a hiding, cowed-down, fighting savior. Some rebel think, waiting to catch him and they found a voluntary surrenderer. And I don't even think you can call this surrender. This is just, he went with them. Oh, look at them. They're binding him? Seizing him? You can imagine how they're throwing They didn't need to. From their vantage point, they got him. From his vantage point, he got them. All this in obedience. The undergirding perspective which governed every action and attitude of our Lord was that he was obeying his Father's will. Verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Everything he ever did was constituted and governed by that commitment. Obedience. This is not an act of submission to man's will. This is an act of submission to God's will. This is not an act of passive resistance. This is not non-violence in the Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King genre. This is a priest acting in obedience to God to save his people on his terms. Thank God that our Savior does things on his terms. The one you resist this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you've not bowed to the claims of Christ over you, you're resisting the one who has your life in his hand and in a breath can snuff it out. You're resisting the creator of the universe. You're resisting the one who made the amoeba that men now glorify as the beginning of themselves. I tell you, that is not the beginning of yourself. You're in the hands of God. 
If that's not the case, in whose hands are you? In an amoeba? You want to trust your destiny to an amoeba, to a paramecium? First two things I ever saw in a microscope, I wouldn't want my destiny entrusted to either one of them. To a chimp? You, you boast against God so you can be the expression of a chimp's evolution? It is foolish, isn't it? It's ludicrous. I don't mean to try to make fun, but I'm, I want you to think. What's your alternative to bowing to the Son of God who in history subdued every mortal purpose enmity against him to his own direction and formed it all and formed the channel of saving river on his own terms. He still do, does so today. Even the wrath of man God will use. Is that not happening in the Middle East? I believe I found great comfort in the scriptures. The wicked shall fall in their own net. This man's pride is going to destroy him. If he just humble himself, he could have saved his neck. It's too late. May we never, may our president never bow to the chicanery of some who didn't spend a dime or a drop of blood coming in late to try to find terms of peace so they can mop up what's left as they did after World War II. It's still an evil empire, brethren. And I still pray for the Christians in there that God will deliver them from those that are now trying to retrench and come back and overtake them again. I tell you, God's in control. And the explanation is, all this is the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It pleased God to bruise him. Man deliberates. God determines. Man had his plans in this thing. He plotted all the effort Judas went to. They paid him to figure out how can we... They wouldn't have had to go to... They wasted their money. He was going to die on the day he died. Look at man. Oh, they've got it all worked out and planned and behind it all God determines the outcome. This is nothing other than the Father and the Son cooperating together to save man from their sins. This is the Father's eternal will and the Son's voluntary obedience. Men and devils are unable to thwart that purpose. I tell you, if God set his eyes and his heart on you from eternity, you shall be saved. You say, well, how do I know if God set his eyes and heart on me from eternity? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the promise of God. Now, there's one last thing, though. This is not, isn't it ironic how God is? This is not an unjust thing that's going on in the garden. From man's attitude, it's unjust. But it's God not just circumventing justice or changing justice. It is God serving justice. God is punishing the sins of his people. And he's holding them against their substitute. Justice is served. We have a computer program of a, of a combat plane, an F-16 fighter pilot that the kids can get on and fly a mission and they can bomb and shoot things. And one of the features of this program is that when you see the target, if certain kind of target, if you have a certain kind of missile on your F-16, you, you, what they call tickle the target. You push the space bar and it puts a diamond around the target. And you hear this buzz. <coughs> 
That sound is what's about, what's about to happen is target you're about to get blown out of the world. You may have heard some of the, uh, seen some of the videos of some of our special laser bombs and things, and you might have heard that sound in the cockpit on a couple of the broadcasts. The, this hum that happens when the target gets pickled. Well, here's the target. It's pickled. Then you press one more time, and you put it out of commission. The justice of God pickled the target and set the diamond of God's wrath upon the Son of God. Now, that justice was designed for us, but God pickled another. He, he cited the, another, one innocent, one not a sinner. And his justice focused on that one, and his justice pickled that target, and his justice hit that target with all the force and blew it up and satisfied justice. And when God punished his son and bruised his son and carried him to Calvary and laid him down on the altar, he established justice. All your sins were satisfied that day at Calvary. And that's what's explaining what's going on in this garden. God is enacting universal justice. You say, that's not just. Why should he be punished and I go free? Because it's justice and mercy meeting together. It's righteousness and truth kissing each other. It is God's grace for you that makes him turn away from his own beloved. That's what John 3.16 means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son not just offered him in a little ribbon-covered package, but he gave him unto death. And the agony of the suffering of his own black wrath, so that whosoever believes on him should not perish and experience that agony and that death, but have everlasting life. This arrest was the beginning of the process of injustice being carried out against Jesus so that justice might be carried out by Jesus. Do you see that? How beautiful is the scripture? He was reckoned among the transgressors. He said to these apostles, the things concerning me have an end. And he said it to them in Luke 22 when he was trying to prepare them for this hour. He said, look, don't get discouraged when you see me falling into the hands of sinful men. The things concerning me have an end. There's a purpose in mind. Remember it when it happens. They forgot it. It's one of the reasons he made sure to protect their bodies is that they weren't ready to handle the crucifixion. Had they been arrested, he would have lost some of them. Maybe all of them. Because their fears at that time, they would have lost their faith. They would have. Peter came as close as you can come. So he protected them. He let them out of the garden. He, he let them get offended so they'd be away from all the intense pressure of the arrest and the trial. So they'd come back and fight another day. They weren't quite ready to handle what was coming on him, and he knew it. How gracious is the Lord. He knows our frame. Well, he learned obedience by the things he suffered, we're told. He experienced obedience personally. And having become perfect, that means perfect in fully obeying, he became not just the means, not merely the occasion, but the author 
of eternal salvation to them that obey him. Isn't that the significance of the text in Hebrews chapter 5? The high priest praying with strong tears and crying to him that was able to save him from death. And he was heard in that he feared. And therefore, having become perfect through suffering, a perfect obedient one, having fulfilled all the obedience required of him, he has now become through that obedience the author of eternal salvation to them that obey him. I'm going to omit some of the applications and drill into one particular one. The only ones for whom he suffered are those who believe on him. You are outside the benefits of eternal life which is the fruit of those sufferings if you do not believe on him. To those who obey him he has become the author of eternal salvation not to those who deny him but to those who obey him. Think about the garden a minute. It's not only a comforting place for the saints. It's a token of terror for the unbeliever because dear friend if tasting and seeing the wrath of God virtually killed the Son of God and you do not hide in him by faith from that wrath that is to come upon all the world what will your experience be when you not merely see it and taste it but drink it to the dregs when all of the fury of the wrath of God that you have now seen in your eyes from the scripture turned against his son and kill it when the whole universe quaked, the sun was blackened, and a veil was ripped supernaturally from top to bottom that only uh, yokes of oxen could tear, as God opened tombs and raised the dead because of the death of his son. What's going to happen to you who don't believe upon Christ? If the Son of God sinless in all of his physical and moral strength could not endure, what will happen to you? who will not hide in him as your substitute, but rather bear the wrath of God for yourself. You see what you're being offered? There's a Savior who has borne the wrath of God for sinners. You hide in him and you don't have to be afraid of the wrath of God. You may rejoice and serve Christ. You neglect to come to Christ. You will drink the wrath of God and you will burn in hell forever. May God deliver you from that and may we encourage the saints with a mighty Savior. Let us bow together. Our Father, you have given us a precious, attentive audience, and we thank you. You have given us utterance and liberty in answer to prayer. We thank you. Now give us the follow-up of your Spirit to drive the convicting power of your Word home to the heart. Save the soul of the one who came, a stranger to grace. Deliver those who are contemplating denying their Savior, betraying the Master, denying the one that bought them. Do a work of grace in us, O Lord. Make us truly and abundantly and sufficiently appreciative of what was suffered in our behalf. O God, our gracious Father, how we stand in utter amazement at justice served and mercy rejoicing over it.
how we stand seeing ourselves punished but ourselves not feeling the punishment how we are amazed that our punishment rested on the back of another and how we now with him rejoice that our salvation is complete the accomplishment of it is finished and we merely await for its final revelation O Lord we pray that you would make us understand these things and keep us close to them and make us to live in the light of them thank you our Father for Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins and our sonship and the blessing that you have placed upon this church who is able and permitted this morning to hear these things before we would close we would ask O Lord that you would multiply the multitude of those who would hear these things around the earth we do pray that out of this war thousands and more would come to know of the Savior and love him Oh, hear our cry, O oh God. Surely you will not turn away the cries of your beloved who come to you in the name of him whom you always hear, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.